Um, it's also funny because so much of what I'm dealing with right now with Kai relates to everything that you you talk about, and especially with the behaviors. Yeah. And just having people understand the behaviors and that, you know, they're not intentional is like, I was like, oh, just write a book. Are you going to write a book? <laughs> no, which you're not supposed to ask. I just, I don't know where I would have the time right now, but... <laughs> Hello and welcome to Syngap One Stories, hosted by me, Ashley Fry. Every couple of weeks, I spread information and awareness about a rare disease that affects my son, Nathan. It's called Syngap One. I chat with parents, siblings, caregivers, and others about the challenges and successes of their journey with someone impacted by Syngap One. I hope you enjoy today's conversation. Don't think you're on the wrong podcast, everybody. This is still Syngap Stories. Um, I am Jessica Johnson, and I am a celebrity host for Ashley Fry. And um, I am so excited today to be talking with Jackie Kants. Pronounce your last name. Kantsier. Kantsier. I'm so excited because not only does she is she a wealth of knowledge, but I'm a huge fan of hers. <laughs> um, recently just started a program called called Partners in Policymaking. We'll talk more about that later. But um, Jackie is a scholar of that program. So um, Jackie is, I was going over her resume and preparing for this. And I was like listing all the things that you do. And it's pretty impressive. So from the outside looking in, uh, Jackie is a mother, a daughter of an advocate, a sister to a brother that has a disability, um, an advocate, a podcaster, a blogger, a caregiver, a teacher, a volunteer, a council member, a photographer, a content designer, a scholar of partners in policymaking, as I mentioned. She's a policy analyst. She's a public speaker, a board member, a lobbyist, a grassroots activist, a wealth of knowledge, as I mentioned. Um, excuse my language, a badass. <laughs> um, and to me, she is a friend and a mentor. So um Thank you so much for being here today with us, Jackie. Well, thank you, Jessica. You're, you're way too kind. Jackie is the mother of um, Jaden, who I had the pleasure of meeting uh, this past November. And my like best memory of her, and I think you describe her so well, is just basically skipping through the amusement park <laughs> and being like a complete ray of light and complete joy. And she's so much fun to be around. She's Her, her personality is infectious. And, um, you know, being the mother of a younger child, I can only hope seeing Jaden, you know, who's going to be 21 in June. Yes. I hope that Kai is doing as well as Jaden is doing when he is that age, because, you know, being also a parent of a young kid, it's scary to think about the future and the unknown, right? It is. And I think that being around kids and parents that are older and have more experience is very refreshing to see that it's not so scary and that, you know, it's a long road, but it's a very gratifying and exciting and um, educational road too. So from your point of view, tell us a little bit about Jaden. Jaden is just amazing. Uh, She really does just approach life with that it's just a big party every day. Uh, that's really what she's looking for on a continual basis is to party. Um, she likes to have fun. She lives in the moment. She's very empathetic and compassionate and truly very thoughtful of not just the people, but the beings around her, whether it's the chickens, the bunnies, the dogs. Uh, she notices when 
people are tired or if they have a sniffle or something, she's like, you need a doctor? Uh, I help. You know, she she does want to be very helpful. She wants to be very independent. Uh, one of her favorite sayings in on the planet is, I do it. No, I do it. Um, so I, I love that about her. I love the grit, the drive that she has, and just the optimism she has in life, despite the challenges that she faces. You know, you mentioned something and I, I went through like all of your amazing interviews and everything, but so I'm probably not going to be able to reference which one it's from, but you mentioned something about it being a blessing in a way, this like, you know, um, ignorance of things that are going on around you and kind of all the bad stuff that's going on in the world. And that is one blessing we do have is our kids basically, you know, they're able to not understand certain things that are hard to understand even for people that can cognitively wrap their heads around it. And so like not knowing about everything that's going on in the world is kind of like a a blessing in disguise, I guess you'd say. Yeah. I think that that one was in reference to, I think that was from the Nashville medical news article. And it was in reference to the ER protocols when we were getting those developed because in a psychiatric hold, part of the psychiatric interview, they asked questions of, about, you know, suicidal ideations and homicidal ideations. And these are concepts that she has absolutely no idea about. And it just really highlighted how we needed a more specialized set of protocols that were more appropriate to delineating self-injury from self-harm, you know, that there's a difference when somebody has this cognitive impairment, they're not thinking of harming somebody. They're not thinking of harming themselves. Those might be the results, but that's not the intent. And it is a blessing that she has no concept of these really awful kind of depraved parts of human society, such as homicide, you know. So yeah, so interesting. Two things that you talked about, you talked about the, you know, the emergency room protocol that you were extremely influential in getting in place in Tennessee. So um, as I mentioned, uh, you are big into advocacy and policy. Talk to me a little bit about the kind of process and getting that done and getting those protocols into the ER. Well, I will say, you know, nothing gets pushed through without a whole team. And I think that that's really one of the, the critical elements that is missed a lot of times that um, it, it certainly wasn't me alone, but it, it is the, the Council on Developmental Disabilities, the Department of Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities, uh, Tennessee ARC, the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center, a whole team of people came together. Part of advocacy is really getting that message out and, and building that team, having a network to be able to do that is, is really where you can be effective with advocacy. But we had a negative experience at an emergency room and You know, parents, absolutely, I tell them all the time, it's okay if you just vent. It really is. But that isn't going to change the next experience, not for you or not for anybody else. So if you really want to change change things, don't just vent, but also think, if it wasn't this way, if it was the way that I needed it to be, what would that look like? And actually develop those solutions because a lot of times these things are a challenge and we're experiencing these challenges 
not because people intended for them to be that way, but because they don't have the answers. If you do have some solutions, recommend them to people. And that's all I did. I sent out an email to multiple people in our network that were influential in policy in the state, and they all got together and worked together for a year to develop the ER protocols. I think building building these circles is so, super important. Um, you know, like you said, you sent a lot of emails. And I think that one thing I've been struggling with personally is I have all these ideas in my head of things I want to do, like policies I want to like think about, you know, affecting and, but I need to put light the fire and I need to send the emails. Yes. And so yeah. you even mentioned something about um, having a template for reaching out to your um, legislators. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's also something that is this something you learn through partners in policymaking um, or is this something you learn kind of through your experience your, with your mom and your brother? And Yeah, I've been doing one pagers and contacting the legislators since you know, I, I very young. Um, but I think that we did cover it in partners. I'm not sure. But no, that that definitely predated partners by, by a couple of decades. Mm hmm. So just for everyone who's listening, Partners in Policymaking is a program that is through the ARC. And I think most states have chapters um, within, or most places have chapters within their state. And it's a year-long program. And it's basically for, you know, people with disabilities, parents, caregivers, anyone who's interested in learning more about how to get their voice ad- out there and become an advocate. So We've been using this word advocate a ton. Like, what would your definition of advocate be or advocacy? So advocacy really is, it's really just to support um, and to raise awareness. And I did a webinar uh, about a month ago or so. And inside that webinar, I did describe the different roles that that exist within advocacy, because advocate is just one of them. And that is... Just letting people know that an issue exists, uh, sharing your own voice or being able to share the needs of another person that you are supporting. Uh, And that is advocacy. But there's also activism, uh, which is where we were talking about kind of pulling the community together. A counterpart to activism would be lobbying, which is pulling more of the government officials or policy decision makers together. So there are about, I I define six different roles in that webinar. And the one I think is really most crucial is admin and support. And that's what I was talking about, where having, knowing who to contact, knowing who can influence these things and get the wheels moving for you. That is really where you go from being upset about an issue or knowing that there's problems to actually being able to affect change is relying on that network. Gotcha. Definitely. So we will also link all of these um, webinars and everything that Jackie's talking about. We'll link all those in the show notes so everyone can um, refer back to that. And we'll also link all of Jackie's amazing interviews um, in the show notes. So recently, um, Kai, my son Kai has been having some, you know, behaviors at school, which his teacher doesn't understand that well. And um, recently I um, retained an advocate. And I think that this is something that definitely is important for parents of Syngapians to know is that the education road is dif- a difficult one for our kids, right? And, you know, 
uh, Mike had talked about this on a, an episode, but um, not having any experience. Kai's my first kid, and so I don't have a lot of experience in the school systems, especially in the special ed area. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's really important for, I think, parents to know their rights and what they are um, able to get as far as services through the school. And an advocate is also somebody that can help you in the educational you know, arena as far as yes. the, the laws, what's, 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 what you are, what is your right? Right. And so it was kind of what was going on in Kai's classroom that pushed me to just jump and get this advocate. And I think I kind of jumped in too soon and hired somebody that just like was the first person I found because I was so anxious to get somebody because it was like a, a kind of serious issue that needed to be addressed immediately. And so I got this advocate. We talked a little bit. I kind of told her what my situation was, sent her Kai's IEP, um, and didn't know a ton about, you know, like finding an advocate at this time. And so I felt really good about it after our first conversation. I was like, she's she's a wealth of knowledge. She's going to help me. She's a former special ed teacher. She really seems like she knows what she's talking about. And the more I thought about it, I'm like, she doesn't live in my state. It's like a, a big company. It's a big company where, mm-hmm. you know, they're all over the country right. and they participate virtually. And um, so she doesn't, she doesn't know Syngap One. She, I tried to tell her about it a little bit, but she also doesn't know Kai. And um, so she had, she went ahead and emailed the principal and teacher and let them know that I had retained her. Her email wasn't the warmest and fuzziest. And I'm a believer in you get more bees with honey and sometimes, mm-hmm. especially in the school system. And ever since that email was sent, I've gotten kind of like a different vibe from his teacher. Um, so it's like, I feel like she's going to help me, but I feel like I really should have thought about who I'm going to get to advocate for Kai um, more thoroughly than I did. So have you had experiences advocating in the educational ar- arena at all? Uh, that's actually where in, in, initiated. So I have decades of experience a, a advocating in the educational arena, including for, we, we have advocated also for families with children with SYNGAP1. And that is the capacity that we do it. You know, if, if you do ever need an advocate or you want somebody to just to look over your IEP, I've done that as well, where, you know, a parent is pretty confident to be able to do the IEP alone, but they just want somebody who has been through the system a little longer with a Syngapian uh, to kind of take a look at that IEP, give some feedback. And so I keep a doodle link in my email signature. People can book a Zoom call with me anytime, but I usually just have them send me their IEP evaluations, anything like that, describe what concerns they have. And then we set up a meeting and we just go over it really section by section of the IEP, what I'm seeing, what kinds of areas they might be able to recommend a different type of accommodation for this, or maybe there's an evaluation that's needed that hasn't been run yet. Regarding the school systems, I think this is, this is something that's really important to, to know is that this, just like we are the first generation really raising children with this level of, of need, um, the schools are the first generation having to provide an education to people with this severity of behaviors. Because the reality is prior generations, our children would have been confined to a state yes. hospital somewhere. 
Um, at best, they would have been at a residential school. Public school systems in the past did not have to educate children like ours. Fortunately, federal law has made it that they do now hold the burden to provide free and appropriate public education to children with all disabilities, even those with severe and challenging behaviors, which is good news for our kids. But even when schools have great attitudes and want to do this, the states have not caught up to that federal regulation. So schools are bound to the federal law, but are states actually infusing enough funding, training, support, and equipment to, for teachers to truly be able to appropriately educate these students that have really complex conditions? And the answer is oftentimes no. And that's where it really falls on parents to help guide them. What is it your child needs in order to have an appropriate education? And it's a real struggle because, you know, um, you want to be super involved. You have to be super involved. Our kids can't come home and tell us about their day at school. And um, that's a big that's a big concern is that you don't really know what's going on in the classroom. So being involved is is huge. Um, one thing you mentioned was that, you know, we're the first generation of people raising these Syngapians and uh, Kai's teacher definitely, you know, she's been a teacher for 22 years in the special ed field and she said Kai is throwing her a curveball. So, yeah. I mean, that speaks to what you said. Um, he's definitely not in the right placement. Um, but going back to um, getting an advocate, you know, I'm going to ask you some advice while we're, you know, chatting here is. Do you think that this person, if you get an advocate that's maybe not appropriate for you, it could hurt you rather than help you in situations? I have seen that happen, um, but it, it's not common. But I have seen that happen. You know, this is there's a lot of nuances to advocacy. There's a time and a place where an advocate absolutely uh, does need to be a little forceful, and it kind of it gives the parents a little break. It makes them seem a little nicer. It makes them seem a little more approachable, the school more willing to work with the parent versus the advocate, you know. So there's a time and a place for that. But like you said, the majority of the time, it, these these matters are really best approached with collaboration and cooperation. I have done this for decades. And I can tell you 95% of the time, even when there are glaring issues in a child's placement or accommodations, it is not due to any kind of nefarious mentality with the schools. It is almost always just due to a lack of knowledge, a lack of understanding, a lack of resources. And those are things that we can, yeah. I think staffing too, you know, I think that they don't have the the resources, as you said, to have all of the options available to provide for, you know, different different classrooms. I think they try to make what they have available seem appealing to you. Yeah. So to give them less work to do, to have to create a new classroom or what is your what is your feeling on how do you think administrators and teachers, what do you think their attitude towards advocates are? Uh, it, like I said, it really just depends. I know, you know, the majority of the time, they often appreciate a good advocate. They appreciate a good advocate because they see that person as a source of resources, right? The advocate's goal is not to admonish the school. 
the advocate's goal is to get a good advocate's goal is to get that child the education they need. That may be training and educating the staff, but it might be also using their advocacy network to help bring more funding or more equipment or outside providers or some extra type of training available to the school that they might not have had access to without that advocate. So um, most schools, as long as it's a good advocate with a strong local network, they actually appreciate having them come in. Um, well, yeah, I will keep you posted on what happens. I, I have an IEP meeting set up for the 23rd and I'm not sure what I'm going to do as far as my advocate. I, I've already paid her. So that's, you know, gone, but I, I don't know that I'm going to keep working with her, but if somebody wants to become an advocate, let's say like for me example, I'm a parent, I have a pretty good, you know, wealth of knowledge as far as, um, the school system and what's available what do I need to do? Is there any training I can do to become a credentialed app? Like what, what do I need you to do to become an advocate? Just learn the system? Yeah, there is no licensing for advocates. Um, so it really, and that's where, like I said, you, you have good advocates and, and you have um, ones that still have some challenges to face, but you know, there is no credentialing. There's no regulations on this. And so you just really, can be self-taught, but there are training programs out there. Uh, our state has several different online virtual type trainings through like Tennessee Step has an IEP training. As far as educational advocacy, IDEA in uh, Section 504, those are ones that you're really going to want to get familiar with, but there's plenty more. And you just build on it as you go. Every case you get, the research you do on that case you're going to be learning more and more. Um, so yeah, it, anybody can get into advocacy. It's just really a personal responsibility to make sure you're well-informed. I think it's also your personality too, right? It's, you gotta, you know, everybody can be an advocate in different way. Like you mentioned, whether it's telling your story through a warrior Wednesday or, um, you know, getting on a podcast or just sending a flyer to your ch your child's school that tells about what Syngap One is, or even sending one of Jackie's webinars, <laughs> which I'm going to do. I'm going to send your behavior SRF webinar to Kai's teacher and say, this would be a good um, source of, re of information for you to look into. Because I think that it, it really is. You talk about so many good things in that webinar, actually. I have a piece of paper over here that I wanted to ask you some so let's turn to behaviors a little bit. We're talking about school and behaviors. Um, you have a lot of good information about severe behaviors. Um, one thing you say that I am, I'm going to make a t-shirt and wear it all the time that says this is behavior is communication. Mm -hmm. And I think once you have that mindset, it's a little bit easier to also deal with our kids, right? Um so talk to me a little bit about severe behaviors and like what you what you see with Jaden, how it's um, affected your life and what kind of things you've had to do to change your environment or, you know, where she's going for services to just make things easier for you and Jaden. Yeah, it, I think the biggest challenge as far as the stigma that's applied to severe behaviors is that we really have to push that this is a disorder, not a decision right? Um, that our children's brains are fundamentally different than the general population's brains and that their behaviors 
are symptoms of a disability that are often in direct contrast to their actual personality. Most children with SYNGAP1 are described as happy and engaging and silly, and that's who they really are. And so when they're experiencing a severe behavior episode, I really encourage parents to view it this way. I encourage them to advocate to their providers and school staff to view it this way, but to view it in the same involuntary capacity as when they have a seizure, because we are talking about that same overactive synaptic activity that is causing a seizure causes these behaviors, and that's outside their control. The big challenge with this is that ABA is very helpful in reducing the um, frequency and the duration of severe behaviors. However, that intensity level is something that we currently aren't seeing any way to really consistently reduce. So that's always a risk factor. Even if you have really intensive services, you're on, you found a a good medication regimen for your child that's working for them. They have 40 plus hours of ABA. They have a really supportive school. They have other adjacent uh, habilitative services. Yes, you might not have as many behaviors and they might not last as long, but in the event they do have them, they're probably going to be pretty explosive. And that can lead to aggression, that can look like self-injury, that can uh, incur property damage. Um, There's a risk of elopement with, with our children and a lack of awareness of danger. And as they get bigger and grow into these adult sized bodies, they get stronger. And it's not as simple as you just pick them up and put them in a shopping cart and take them out of the store anymore. Now, what do you do? And so these are important considerations that we have to have safety plans for with our children always, because it is always a risk. Did you feel like when you were, when Jaden was younger, um, did you feel like it was, that was always a concern that her, her getting bigger and those those aggressions being coming from somebody who's more your size and how to control that? Has that been a concern for you? I I don't know if I was just naive or or what (laughs) was wrong with me when I was younger. We did have behavior challenges with Jane, and that's important to note. Uh, And safety concerns with her, especially once JJ was born, Uh, you know, she pushing him down when he would try to learn to walk and fighting him head to toe. And I just, you know, there was, there were behavior challenges but she was so tiny. I mean, she wasn't even on the growth chart some years. She was so yeah. tiny for so long that I don't think I ever allowed myself to kind of look forward into thinking that this was someday going to be a person that was 60 pounds more than me. And I wasn't going to be able to physically manage this anymore. So that didn't really occur until she was 15 is when the behaviors took a whole new, sudden, drastic downturn where it became, the intensity really just became a a sudden surge and she was stronger and she was bigger. And that's the point when this became something that was difficult to manage. When did um, Jaden start ABA therapy? Oh, she was very young, maybe um, in Pennsylvania, we had wraparound services, I think already in early intervention, maybe, if not, it was in that direct transition from three to four. 
So Kai, yeah, Kai just got an autism diagnosis this past year. So that ABA is something that's on my to-do list for 2024. And you have some great resources for finding good ABA providers. Yeah. And I think that uh, we'll provide that in the show notes. But, you know, I have been having a hard time finding um, ABA provider in my area. And I think my area is pretty decent when it comes to services. Um, but it's interesting. I called four places the other day. One place didn't take my insurance. One place didn't offer it where I am location. Um, one place didn't, wasn't accepting any new, any new clients, which I thought that was kind of crazy. And the other, other place is gonna try is, is going to get back to me, but it's just like finding a good time that works with our schedule. So I think, you know, your resource on finding good ABA is going to be really helpful for a lot of young um, Syngapian parents. Um, I remember sitting in the first conference for um, our SRF roundtable in Orlando and hearing you talk. And I remember you telling a story about being in the car with Jaden and her kind of getting out of her her seat and being trying to open the back doors. And I remember listening to your story and being like, OMG, like, yeah. this is so scary. Like, I can't believe that. And now today, it's just interesting coming f- full circle. Whenever Kai's has to go with anybody else in their car, one of the main things I have to tell them is make sure your child locks yeah. are engaged in the back seat. Yeah. Like they have to be because Kai just this year, just a couple months ago, has started trying to open the door get out of his seat, mm-hmm. do all that stuff. So it's just, you think that you hear stories from parents who have been in this, um, been on this journey a little bit longer. And you think that maybe your child's a little bit younger. You started early intervention at a different age. Maybe you won't see this in your kid. And I think that it's really best just to assume you will see it <laughs> and prepare for it. than think that you're going to be Um, an exception, right? All of our kids are so different. It is a spectrum. And like you said, you could, they're, they're, they're the sweetest, most empathetic kids that you could possibly imagine. And, um, but they can, they also have this other side, which is not their fault. It's a, it's, it's a symptom of their diagnosis. And you had a great picture of, I think it was the neurons where you showed a a typical brain and then you showed a Syngap brain and it looks like, yeah, um, fireworks on the Fourth of July in the Syngap brain. Well, yeah, that so, that image comes from Dr. Richard Huguenier, who sits on the Syngap Research Fund Scientific Advisory Board. Out of he's out of John Hopkins, and that image is from him. And he does have that comparison side by side, and I think it's one of the most powerful things. Every Syngap parent should keep that, give it to every teacher, provider, everybody that they have to show them that our children's brains at the synaptic level, the neuronal level are are fundamentally different than anybody else's brains. And that over connectivity, um, the over excitability of their brains is what we are seeing with that behavior. It is not intent. It is their brain on fire. They cannot control it. They are not making a decision and it is up to us to help them try to regulate that brain and and bring those behaviors back down. So we talked about empathy a little bit. I'm going to kind of jump around, but um, you mentioned empathy and that's something I think is really big with our kids. So Kai, when he sees somebody else get upset, that's a trigger for him. He gets so unconsolable when he sees somebody else Mm -hmm. crying. When we're in a doctor's office, he hears somebody crying. Um, Do you think there's something behind, you know, them not being able to, express or understand why do you think that the empathy is 
is so big with our kids. So I do think that a, I've, I've thought a lot about this. This is a really good question. And, and I, the short answer is I don't have the definitive answer, but this is what some of the things I've thought about. So yes, I think a, that their communication impairment does lend to this because spoken communication is not generally the language, the first language of people with SYNGAP1. And so they spend a lot of time reading body language and facial expressions, and they're much better at it than we are. And um, so I do see that consistently across Singapians that they are just very intuitive to the energy in a room, to whether somebody actually likes them or is pretending to like them. And those kind of, they, they are masters at picking up on that and judging characters. But I can't completely lend it to the communication impairment because we look at, you know, more broadly, people with uh, an autism spectrum disorder diagnosis without a genetic identifier. Typically, that isn't as common throughout. And oftentimes, even when they are nonverbal, a lot of them may be the, the exact opposite and may be more aloof and not aware of other people's emotions and things like that a lot of times. So I don't know what that difference is, but it is interesting to me because I see it commonly among people with SYNGAP1 that they have this hyper intuition of others around them. And I'm interested to see if research starts to give us some answers as to what that is. Yeah, it's very interesting. And you just had a recent Facebook post where you talked about you went to a new center and you were watching Jade and you were waiting in, I think, the like the lobby Mm -hmm. and you she was waving at somebody or something and you saw that you could tell that she felt rejected. You saw the rejection in her body. Yes. And it's interesting that they can they feel it and they can show it, but it's hard for them to understand it. Right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that is the hardest thing in the world to see. Cause I saw that also in a similar situation with Kai and he just, he's so social. And I think a lot of our kids are so social and that's kind of yeah. interesting because they are, a lot of them also have autism, autism which is a yes. you know, social communication disorder. Right. And that's kind of the reason that for so long they wouldn't give Kai the diagnosis. He was too social to give the diagnosis. Eye contact is good, but he does do other things that, you know, are similar to autistic behavior. But the fact that he's so empathetic and he's so in tune to people's feelings was like they were that that was the the one off. Do you think that is why Syngapians love animals so much too? Because they can't speak either and they kind of just understand each other. Yeah. And it's not just Syngapians love animals, but animals love Syngapians. I mean, like, generally speaking, if you if you take a child with Syngap 1 into a room with a bunch of that, those dogs are going to just relax around them. They are going to acclimate. That them. is so it's true. I have the nastiest cat. My cat is, I love my cat, but my cat is not nice to anybody. When I was pregnant, I was legitimately concerned about this cat being around Kai. This cat has never once hissed or anything. This is Kai's best friend. She licks him. She does. It's so weird. Mm-hmm. She's a totally mm-hmm. different cat with him. And I'm like, is it? Do they are they communicating in a different way with each other? It is. It's so interesting to watch them with animals. Yeah, it really is. Um, I, you know, I I don't I don't know what that is. I don't know even if we we've studied it across any disorder. But um, it is it is quite fascinating to see syngapians around animals. 
So we have a couple more minutes. I want to talk about how fabulous Jaden is and all the <laughs> fabulous things she's doing because let's be honest, that's why we're here. Um, she is, as we mentioned, a ball of energy. Mm-hmm. And I just have this vision of her like skipping through the amusement park and just like singing to herself mm-hmm. and being so happy. Um, what are some other things Jaden loves to do? And like, what are some things you're most proud of her that you've seen her do recently? <laughs> and so with Jaden, the way you saw her skipping through and singing to herself through the amusement park, that's her every day. Like that truly is what she does yeah. wherever I, she's at. I love the Facebook post and everything. Like I think she was going to the bus the other day. Yeah. yeah. And she was skipping. Yeah, she she was. I'm telling you, she's just like a, a living part. She's my spirit animal. <laughs> she, so um, Jaden has been, she's going to be transitioning. You know, she has a year, a little over a year and a half left of, public education. And then after next June, she won't be in school anymore. And so we were looking at what is she going to do after school? And that's why we moved to the the homestead here. And so she's been learning a lot of skills on how that will be her kind of occupation after, after high school. And she has learned how to collect eggs and be able to put them into her apron and things without cracking them because that requires, you know, a lot of fine motor acquisition that she didn't necessarily have when we started. And she counts the eggs, she sorts them. um, She puts them into the egg cartons. And then now we're adding on to that because for community engagement, I want to be able to take her to farmer's markets so she can set up a little stand. She loves people. And so um, I'm sure she's not going to make any money because she's going to be giving everything away. Like here, here, <laughs> like to give everybody presents. And so, um, but that's okay. But she's going to be going to the farmer's market. So we're learning value added products, like how to bake breads. We have a garden in the summer and so we'll take zucchini and then we learn how to make that, shred that up and then make zucchini bread from it. She has a new induction stove with a convection oven. So she's been like baking cakes and she really likes that. Oh, yeah. That is so, I saw that one of her favorite things to do is baking. And Mm -hmm. while we share a passion for makeup artistry, we do not share a passion for baking, but (laughs) I is amazing and I want her to make my birthday cake this year. Yeah. Yeah. She she's she, she can crack an egg one-handed with no shells in the bowl. I can't even do that. But that's what I can't do that either. Yeah. Yeah. She's she's really great. Well. Mm-hmm. Kai loves being in the kitchen. He his favorite thing to do right now is he likes to get like up on the sink and he actually takes a cup, fills it with water and pours it into another cup and just pours it back and forth. And it's fantastic. I'm like, this is great practice. I was just telling a bartender one day. I don't know. I but Jaden's home health staff a couple of days ago. That was Jaden's original behavior intervention that we had written into her preschool IEP because that was her favorite thing. It was guaranteed to calm her down. Anytime they had any kind of precursors, I was like, just take her to a sink, give her two cups, give her a little step stool, and she will just sit there and pour one cup to another. She doesn't do it anymore, but that was her original call. My mind is blown. I'm I'm going to text Kai's teacher after this and literally tell her that because that is such a great idea. They have a sink in the classroom. Mm -hmm. We're working, trying to find things to do to kind of, you know, redirect. That is a great idea. See, you are, you just, you need to write a book. You need to write a book, Jackie. Uh, well, well, I'm sure Mike will sponsor the 
the publishing of it. I'm not, you know, just putting it out there, but you need to write a book because you are really a wealth of knowledge and it's, I'm so happy to know you and I'm so excited to continue to learn from you. I love the fact that you moved to this farm and you did it for Jaden and you were preparing for her transition, which I wish we had more time to talk about that. That's a whole nother episode. But um, I love, I want to come spend my summer on the farm with Jaden because I just think that who couldn't be happy on the farm with Jaden, right? Um, So she finishes school at the end of this year and then she'll transition school next year what is she most? what is she next year what is she most excited about in in right now like what is something that's new and exciting to her um new and exciting I I don't really have anything new and exciting that that's got Jaden just is very happy with bus school art class she really is she likes what she likes. We are watching the same movie and the same song for the past 14 years with Elsa and let it go. And um, so that's okay. Yeah. Things generally stay the same for her, but uh, she still is very excited about going to school. I don't know how we're going to help her understand when there isn't any more school, but for that, I'm going to be relying a lot on Kathy and Heather and Nancy and those that have gone before me and how do we prepare her for after school? And that's the best part of this SRF community is just learning from each other. I think that, you know, being, you know, a little bit newer to this, having people that have older kids, I think is so helpful. And I think that, you know, we can all learn from each other's stories. Um, and it just takes us all advocating our own for our own kids, right? Yeah. We're our kids best advocates. And once we advocate, we can also meet people and build community that way. So um, I wish we had more time to talk. I think we're almost out of time, but I wish we had more time. We're going to put all the links for Jackie's, um, all of her great interviews and everything. But uh, any last piece of advice for parents out there? My biggest advice is just to get involved with the community. It made such a huge difference in our lives it is the number one best asset a parent that has complex, a child with complex needs can have is to have a community of people who really get it. And we have that in the Singap Research Fund. So reach out, get involved, ask questions, don't be shy. And that is really going to take you further than anything. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. I look forward to seeing you hopefully in person and Jaden very, very soon. And I also want to request um, her to do my makeup next time I see her. (laughs) Well, careful what you wish her. She absolutely will do that. (laughs) (laughs) I would love that. Thank you so much, Jackie. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe and like us wherever you're listening. For more information about today's guest and Singap One, please check out our show notes. Your suggestions are always welcome. Please email us at ed at cursingapone.org.